Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. You may be seated. As we all get seated, let me pray for us. Lord God, be with us now. Be with me as I preach. Be with us as we listen. Open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Open our eyes to see see your beauty and to make us long for you that, bitch, that much more. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. So when we were much, 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 much younger, Jess and I were a little bit into CrossFit. <laughs> it's not a joke. <laughs> You can probably, you're probably wondering how I managed to look like this. <laughs> okay, there's a reason why Brett carries the, the, this thing to the front. For, anyway, because <laughs> I tried it once and I was out breath for the next five minutes. Okay, if you don't know what CrossFit is, it's not the name of a church. Not a bad idea, but it's not the name of a church. It's an exercise movement. Functional fitness, although I have no idea how functional it is. It's, it's people flipping tires, flinging rope, and lifting weights. Okay, that, that's what most people did, but not Jess and I. We became the stuff of legend. Instructors couldn't believe how much we lifted. You see, while everyone around us were lifting these barbells with huge weights on the side, they couldn't find something light enough for us to lift. <laughs> and so what we lifted were these thin PVC pipes. <laughs> Functional fitness. <laughs> okay, so anyway, we were, we were reminiscing about this the other day, and we were thinking, and when we think about it, we think about the PVC pipe, but we also think about these slogans that the instructors will yell at, our, yell at us as we are dripping with sweat and trying to do that one more push-up or one more whatever rep it is. And slogans like this, pain is weakness leaving the body. <laughs> Everest is there to be climbed, so climb it, we will. And when you're in pain, and you're just trying to look like you're doing what everyone else is doing, you don't stop to think, that doesn't make sense. You go, yes, yes, that's not an injury. That's weakness leaving the body. 
I do want to climb Everest. <laughs> I do. I'm going to climb it. <laughs> I want to look like him. <laughs> you see, because slogans have power, don't they? And so now, this morning, I open with this question, what slogans are you living by? When you are tired and when you are exhausted, what are the slogans that keep you motivated? When you don't know what to do or where to go, what are the slogans that, are, that you use as a, as a guiding light to push you in the right direction? Because slogans have power, don't they? They say a bit, the, the, the best slogans say something about who we are and who we want to be. Think different. Just do it. Impossible is nothing. Just keep swimming. Because you're worth it. And of course, in my own household, I can't find my phone. Has anyone seen my phone? <laughs> it's not just companies and movies and, and families that have slogans, right? It's our culture has slogans too. Slogans that say something, that declare who we are and who we want to be. And the most powerful slogans stick in our heads. They stick in everyone's heads. And because everyone else lives by them, because everyone else assumes them to be true and correct, we all come to assume they must be true and correct. And then over time, these slogans have a way of finding their way into our thoughts, into our attitudes, and then into our behavior. But that's the thing, right? As every child has to be told, just because everyone else thinks something is true and correct and self-evident does not make it true and correct. And this is the problem Paul was addressing in our passage today. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're in the letter of 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago to the church in a place called Corinth, a church that he helped to set up. And he's writing to respond to various reports he'd received about the church. And in today's section of the letter that we're looking at, Paul is taking time to address slogans. Slogans that had found their way into the thoughts, into the attitudes, and into the behavior of the church in Corinth. And so when we look at today's passage, we'll notice that there are quotation marks in the passage. And these quotation marks, they're not, they're not in the original Greek but the translators have very helpfully put in these quotation marks so that we know that Paul isn't condoning these things necessarily, but he's addressing them. These are slogans that were going around in the Corinthian church and Paul is responding to them. We're going to go through some of these slogans. Look at the first one with me. The first slogan was in verse 12, the slogan that all things are lawful for me. Put it another way. Everything is permissible for me. I am free to do whatever I want. Is the, is the thinking that the rules don't apply to me because there are no rules. There are no moral absolutes. I am free. I'm completely free. I call the shots in my own life. No one else matters. I am free. It is my right to do whatever I want to do and to be whoever I want to be. Paul takes this slogan and, and turns it on and he said, look, look at verse 12 again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You see, the Corinthian Christians were saying, I am free to do whatever I want, 
Paul comes in and says, yes, but, but not everything is good. You are free to do whatever you want, but not everything is good for you. And not everything is good for others. Yes, you have rights, you are free, but not everything is helpful, not everything is good. We see what's happening here, don't we? Paul is taking what the world says and he turns it around and says, the world says, I do, I have the right to do whatever I want. The gospel says, not everything is good for you. Not everything you want is good for you. The gospel says, I have the right. I do what's best for me. The gospel comes in and says, I do what's best for my neighbour. The gospel is so different, isn't it? <laughs> because our God is so different. Jesus, the God-man, came what, not to be served, but to serve. And in doing that, he has set the tone for all those who would call ourselves Christians. But Paul isn't done with this slogan. Look at the second half of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The word dominated has the idea of coming under the authority of something, of being controlled, of being mastered, of even being enslaved. How many of us this morning come in dominated by something? Come in mastered, controlled, perhaps even enslaved. A substance, alcohol, a philosophy, <laughs> pornography, sex, our career, social media, gaming, a relationship. How many of us have become enslaved, trapped, dominated, controlled by not using our freedom wisely, of just giving in to whatever our hearts wanted in the moment. Christ City, how many of us need to hear this right now? Everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, but, but don't be enslaved by anything. You are free. Yes, you have rights, but use your freedom for good. You are free. You have rights, but use your freedom wisely. Don't be enslaved by anything. The second slogan Paul addresses is in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And so here, even though the quotation marks don't go all the way, it's the whole sentence that captures the essence of the slogan. You see, the Corinthians were saying this, what you do with your body doesn't matter, so do whatever feels right to you. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach food, you get hungry. It's a natural bodily instinct, so just eat whatever you want, as much as you want, whenever you want. You see, they were saying how you eat has got no lasting consequences anyway. God will destroy both one and the other. And then what was happening, they were taking this slogan and they were applying it to sex. They were saying what you do with your body doesn't matter. So do whatever feels right to you. Sex is for the body and the body for sex is the natural 
desire. So act on it. That's what they were saying. Have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter. It's just natural. They were saying, my body, my rights, my choice, it's my body, so I can do whatever I want to do with my body. You don't tell me. I choose what's right and good for me. And we see what Paul, Paul does again, doesn't he? He, he? he turns it and he just flips it on his head. See, the Corinthians said sex for the body and the body for sex. Paul says no. Verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Let's just take a moment to, to dwell on this last, last, last phrase. What Paul writes should blow our minds. The Lord is for the body. Have you ever felt or has someone ever told you that you or your body are worthless? Have you ever felt, or has anyone ever suggested to you that God, if he even did exist, is some detached being that has got no interest in how you live or in you at all? If you've ever thought this, if, if anyone has ever whispered this into your ear, hear these words. The Lord is for the body. The Lord is for your body. You matter to God. Your body matters to God. Yes, even with all its imperfections. How do we know it matters? You matter to God. Jesus gave his body for yours. Don't believe the lie that the world tries to say that you and your body are of no value. You and your body do not matter. Verse 20 says it this way, you were bought with a price. The price was Jesus himself. In his death and resurrection, Jesus bought you so that you and your body can be destined for resurrection. That's what verse 14 means. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Just as God the Father raised God the Son, God will also raise us up. We know where we're headed after we die and our bodies will be resurrected. Our bodies are destined for resurrection and not just that, as we wait for resurrection, for that day when we'll be in perfect union with God. Even now, we're already part of Christ. We are one with God's Spirit and therefore we and our bodies are for the Lord and we are not our own. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. You see, the world says your body is of no value. What you do with it does not matter. The gospel says you and your body are of eternal value. That God himself will give up his son to redeem you and resurrect your body. And not just resurrect our body, but redeem it and make it whole. Our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. No more pain and no more sickness. 
See, the world says, I am my own person. The gospel says you were redeemed. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You see, the world says, my body, my rights, my choice. The gospel says, God's body, God's glory. The world says, my body, my choice. The gospel says, God's body, God's glory. This is both terrifying and comforting, isn't it? Let's be honest, even the thought of losing ownership over our own lives is terrifying. It goes against something that the world has declared is key to all of human existence, the right to self-determination. But here's the thing, terror becomes comfort when our eyes are opened. When our eyes are opened to see how messed up we are how ignorant we are, and our eyes are open to see how good and all-knowing God is. You see, it's only when we realize how lost we are that we would happily take direction from someone we can trust to bring us home. And then the thought that we are not alone, that we are never alone, that we can never be alone, that we are part of someone bigger, yes, can be terrifying. We like to think that we're able to put up a wall of secrecy and anonymity when we want to, right? Private web browsers, secret places, dark corners, locked doors, other locations. We like to think that we can, we can go to a place of secrecy where we're free to do whatever we want. We like to think there's a place we can go where we can cut ourselves off from the rest of the world where no one sees, no one knows, what we do doesn't matter. And it's terrifying when we realize that there's no such place. There's nowhere we can hide. But then this terror becomes comfort when, when our eyes are opened and when we see God's heart, you see, He knows everything there is to know about us, the good and the bad, and yet He loves us. He sees the, the depth of our sin, the sin that even we don't see, and what does He do? He gave His Son. He has redeemed us. He has taken all our sin, the sin that we know about, even the sin we don't know about, on Himself and He's given us His righteousness to redeem us from our sin. You see, He makes us a part of Him, not to control us, not to take something from us, but so that all that He has can be ours. There's one last slogan that Paul addresses. He doesn't quote it directly, but we can read between the lines. See, the Corinthians were saying, who I have sex with doesn't matter, even if it's with prostitutes. They were saying, it's just sex. It's just sex. Why, why, why get into such a pickle over it? It's just sex. See what Paul says. He says, no. It's never just sex. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
See, Paul is addressing the, the issue of having sex with prostitutes, but what he writes about applies to sex more generally, and, and can I add this, and it includes pornography. Who you have sex with matters. Because who you become one with matters. You see, what you do with your body matters. And we are one with Christ. You see, there's something sacred that happens when two people have sex. It has unique effects on a person's psyche, even if you don't, even if you've had sex with so many different people that you've forgotten it. It is the most intimate that two people can become. And so the Bible says it must be reserved for only the most permanent of relationships between two people. You see, who you have sex with matters. And sex is only, only to be between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage. So three slogans that Paul flips around. Let me summarize them for us again. The world says you are free. You have the right to do, to do whatever you want. The gospel says you are free, but use your freedom for good. You are free, but use your freedom wisely. Don't be enslaved. Don't be dominated by anything. The world says, my body, my choice. The gospel says, God's body, God's glory. The world says, it's just sex. The gospel says, it's never just sex. Today's passage ends a section of 1 Corinthians that, that consists of chapters 5 and 6. And so as we end this section, I want to take the second half of, of this sermon to, to, to help us come up for some air. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, these few weeks in chapters 5 and 6 have been so good. <laughs> but they have been really heavy for many of us, haven't they? Scripture has been challenging us in a profoundly countercultural way. And for many of us, it's been so tough. And we need to come up for air because even as you work through what Scripture calls us to do and not to do, it's just as important for us to work through why and how. You see, focusing only on what God calls us to do while forgetting the why and the how will just lead to a joyless Christianity. It will lead us on a journey of, of, of fear, of a life lived based on fear and burden that, that so often just leads to a dead end of bitterness and resentment. And that's not how it's supposed to be. The gospel life is primarily a life lived in light of the why and the how. The gospel life is primarily a life of response, a life of gain, submitting. Yes, the word is submitting to Christ's lordship. But as a response to the gain we already have in Him, fullness of joy, true rest, unshakable hope that is all ours as we are part of Him. 
So on this topic of slogans, as we conclude chapters 5 and 6, let me give you four slogans. Four slogans from 1 Corinthians. Four slogans to hold together the what with the why and the how. Four slogans that declare in Christ who we are and who we hope to be. God saves sinners. You are not a sinner anymore. You are not your own. And you are not alone. God saves sinners. You are not a sinner anymore. You are not your own. And you are not alone. So firstly, God saves sinners. Our God is in the business of saving sinners. Apart from God, we are all sinners. Only God can save us. And so our hope rests not in ourselves or anything we can do, anything we have done, or anything we're going to do. Our hope rests in this, Christ's finished work on the cross to save all sinners. Look at how Paul addresses the Corinthians, the people he's writing to in, in 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. See, Paul is writing, writing to the, he's writing to the family. He's writing to those who are already called to be saints, sinners who have already been saved by Christ, teaching them then as in response how to live as people who have already been saved. Let's not get it the other way around. God saves sinners and then he's telling us who have been saved how to live. You see, God saves sinners and therefore, if you have put your faith in God, you are not a sinner anymore. Brett preached through this last week, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then six of the most beautiful words in all of human history. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. You are not a sinner anymore. Do you hear that? You are not a sinner anymore. Whoever needs to hear this, hear this. You are not a sinner anymore. The old has gone and the new has come. You are not a sinner anymore. Because God saves sinners. Third, you are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. You matter. You are loved. You are valued. You are infinitely valued. You are eternally valued. You were bought with a price. The price of Jesus' own life. You have been redeemed and so therefore now you are not your own. Lastly, you are not alone. All this that Paul writes to the Corinthians he writes 
to, the, to them as a group. He doesn't say you, he says y'all. God has called you, called you all to be part of someone bigger. You are members of Christ. You are one spirit with the living God and you all are united not just to God, but to every other Christian who has been united with God, to God. Look again at how Paul addresses them in, the, in 1 verse 2. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. You don't walk this journey alone. You don't get to walk this journey alone. You don't have to walk this journey alone. You're not supposed to walk this journey alone. It is an age-old lie of the devil to make us think that we are unique in our struggle. To make us think that such is what I have gone through, such is what, such is what I have done, that no one can understand that no one can empathize, that no one is qualified enough to give me advice. You are not alone. You don't get to walk this journey alone. Reach out. If you have not reached out yet, reach out. Confess your sin. It is humiliating, it is mortifying, but it is good. Confess your sin. If there's a sin in your life, think of someone now you're going to confess it to. <laughs> and then have them confess their sin to you. <laughs> that was my turn, how about you? <laughs> Fight sin together. If you don't know what to do, get advice. If you're hurting, receive comfort. If you're discouraged, look for encouragement. And always, always, always ask people to pray for you. This week as I was preparing for this passage, it was just so heavy for me. And past the point, all, all I could do is I just asked, I asked my wife Jess, I asked some people, pray for me. You are not alone. So please don't, Walk this journey alone. God saves sinners. You are not a sinner anymore. You are not your own. And you are not alone. Words of challenge, but also words of comfort. Some of us here today might not identify as Christians. And that's you, you're probably wondering, why on earth would Christians live this way? Why would, why would everyone else in this room be nodding and saying yes? The answer is this. We were sinners, but God saved us. And so therefore, we are not sinners anymore. We are not our own. And we are not alone. Jesus has saved us and given us a new identity and now there is nothing more wonderful. 
nothing more wonderful in the world than living life the way God created us to live and trusting Him even when it doesn't make sense to us. You see, Jesus has opened our eyes to see the joy of living in relationship with Him and, and everything else. Everything else, everyone else just pales in comparison. If you, are, if you are wondering but you are curious, can I just encourage you to talk to someone? Because at one point, each of us here were wondering and were curious. And can I just say perhaps, just perhaps, that curiosity is the first seed of something new. You're not committing yourself to anything, but if you're curious, talk to someone. Talk to someone next to you. <laughs> look for me, look for Brett, look for anyone wearing a staff lanyard. Talk to someone because <laughs> you are not alone. Some of us here would call ourselves Christian, but, but we're struggling. We're struggling with the guilt of sin. We read what the Bible says, especially chapters five and six, and it just piles fresh guilt on us. We think of all that we've done, perhaps even all that we're doing now, and we don't know how can we for, be forgiven God saves sinners. You are not a sinner anymore. You are not your own. And you are not alone. See, the world says you are defined by your own actions. You need to clean up your own mess. You need to deal with your own consequences. The gospel says God saves sinners. All sinners. You are not a sinner anymore. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, God has paid the price. He's taken all of your sin on Himself and He's put all His righteousness on you. And you've done so much, you think, how can that be true? Let me tell you, it is true. You are not a sinner anymore. Don't buy into the arrogance of thinking that you have to do something to earn your salvation. No, God saves sinners and you are not a sinner anymore. But then there are some of us who are struggling with the temptation to sin. Sometimes it's both guilt and temptation. Sometimes it's just temptation. You might even be in so deep that it's no longer a temptation but domination. We become dominated by sin, controlled, perhaps even enslaved. We know all there is to know. We, we even can, we know exactly what this does to us, but we can't stop. God saves sinners. And you are not a sinner anymore. You are not your own. And you are not alone. You see, the world says, you do you. You are free. In fact, you should do whatever you want to do. The gospel says Jesus died so that you can be free to do what is right. The world says you are free to do whatever you want. The gospel says Jesus died so that you can be free to do what is right, what is good, what is helpful. You are not a sinner anymore. These are not words of control. These are words of hope. You are not a sinner anymore. You don't have to sin anymore. 
You are not a sinner anymore. God has given you a new heart to want to do what is good. That you're wrestling right now, that is a sign of God's grace in your life. You are not a sinner anymore. God has given you His Word to guide you, His Spirit to empower you, His church to come alongside you. You are not a sinner anymore. You know what that means? It means that you can change. That disgusting habit that, that makes you just feel all unclean, you can change because you are not a sinner anymore. It will take time. It will be painful. It will cost you a lot but it is worth it. You can change because you are not a sinner anymore. You don't have to sin anymore. Others of us, after reading these passages, we're beginning to realize that there's something we need to do. I know this because as, we've, as I've talked to some of you guys, that, that's, that's what we've realized. Chapters five and six have surfaced something that perhaps we might need to do. Something that might need to change something we might need to repent of. We may not even know what exactly it is we need to do, but we know we need to do something and we know that it's going to cost us. And the cost and the uncertainty scares us. Be assured of this. God saves sinners and you are not alone. You have been saved. You have a community that you've been saved into and you have an inheritance that is waiting for you. Change is scary, repentance is costly, and sacrifice is painful, but it is worth it. You see, be assured, but this morning also be challenged. You are not a sinner anymore, and you are not your own. This means change and repentance and sacrifice as God tells us what to do, and makes us more like Him. See, the Christian life is a life of the cross, of dying to self, of saying not what we will, but what God wills. Not we will, but what God wills as we trust His perfect will, His perfect plan for our lives. See, you are not a sinner anymore. Therefore, it's no longer about the bare minimum you can do to get away with being called a Christian. It's about doing everything we can do to lean into the life of joy and hope and peace that God has bought for us, that we've been redeemed for, and that God has intended for all of us to walk in. This will mean persecution. This will mean loss. This will mean pain. But it's no different from what our Lord Jesus went through. And it is worth it because He is worth it. For some of us, our anguish is not for ourselves, but for our loved ones. Every week we're at church is a reminder of the people who used to come to church with us. We read these verses and we think of a loved one. Loved ones who might have even become hostile. They say that we have to choose. 
if we don't fully celebrate who they choose to be and what they want to do, then we are against them and they want nothing to do with us. And we are torn. Our hearts are broken. We're torn with allegiance to our Saviour who saved us and love for our loved ones who are marching to the beat of today's slogans. I know there are some of us here right now who are feeling that. God saves sinners. Our God is in the business of saving sinners. Only God can save sinners. We can't save sinners. And so if you are wrestling, if you are in anguish, we lament with you. But he also hear this, the best way we can love others is to love God. The best way we can love our loved ones is to love God and to pray for them as we trust in God's goodness, as you trust in His power to save. We ask God to help us respond with humility and gentleness because we were once sinners. And all we can do is we, we can point everyone to the one who saved us and the only one who can save them. We ask God to help us respond with humility and gentleness and wisdom, but we also ask Him to help us to stand firm. To stand firm. Because it's not hatred and intolerance that compels us to stand firm, it's love. Love for our loved ones, love for the one who saved us, and trust in the only one who can save them. You see, what our loved one needs, what our loved ones need is not for us to become like them, but for them to become more like Christ. And so hard as it is, we ask God to help us stand firm and trust Him. To trust that He loves our loved ones more than we ever could to trust in His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Hard as it is, we ask God to help us stand firm and trust in His love and His power to save. You know, when, when we first moved to Vancouver, I, I came here with a lot of fear. I'd heard about the, how, Christians are such a minority in Vancouver. And I also heard a lot about the, the kind of opposition that our culture, that Vancouver's culture has to Christianity. I have so much fear. People ask me, what do I do? I just go, oh, I, I study theology. <laughs> and then I met all of you. You have given me, you gave me the privilege of hearing your stories of standing firm. Of standing firm when you've had everything to lose. 
of standing firm even when you've lost everything. Standing firm despite persecution. Despite unimaginable heartbreak. Despite the cost. Can I just take a moment to say, I'm proud to be part of you. Because through your stories, God has been teaching me about it. His power to save. God has been teaching me to have more confidence in His gospel than I've ever had. God has been teaching me that He's not done with the city yet. He's been teaching me what it means to stand firm because God has and continues to be in the business of saving people. And so believe me, I, I say this not from a position of strength, but as someone who has been blessed by and is learning from all of you. As you pray for your loved one, stand firm. Trust in God's love and His power to save and know that you are not alone. We stand firm with you. Your church stands firm with you. Your family stands firm with you. Your family prays with you. We pray with you for the day when you can say to your loved one, do you believe that God saves sinners? Then you are not a sinner anymore. Then you are not your own. And welcome to the family because you are not alone. Christ City, we pray, let's pray for the day when the slogans of our culture will not be those of corporations and films, but that of our Saviour Jesus Christ and His power to save.